Welcome, ABF Online. It's great to see your faces again, or maybe you're just seeing my face, but we're glad you're here with us, and we know someday you'll be joining us live here on campus, but whether you're worshiping with us this morning from across the street or in another state or around the world, we're glad that you've come to worship God with us today. the King, all glorious above, all gratefully sing His wonderful love, our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and good everything. Oh, tell of His might, oh, sing of His grace. Whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, his chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds fall, and dark is his path on the wings of the teach you a new song this weekend, which we haven't done a lot of in pandemic land, but we got to learn some new songs as a church. So I heard this one, Stephanie played it for me, and I'm like, 
for the first time in five years, no joke, the worship song ended and I was like, I kind of wish that it was longer. And that does not happen because typically they're 19 minutes long and I have to kind of trim them back for, for y'all. But anyway, this song is what I'd like to call a jam, right? It's just fun. It makes you feel great. It's got great words. So imagine yourself around the campfire, kick off your shoes, especially if you're in public, do that and uh, have yourself a good time. This is called Power. It goes like this. Some may trust in horses Some may trust in chariots Oh, but I I'm gonna trust in the name of the Lord Yeah Some may trust in riches Some may trust in all they own Oh, but I, I will trust in the name of the Lord. Come on. There is wonder-working power, Holy Spirit power, great redeeming power, power in the name, resurrection power, bondage-breaking power. Thank you so much, worship team. That was awesome as usual. I love worshiping the Lord together. Hey, we have some things you should know that are going on here, and uh, we always are committed to prayer. You know that. 97,000. Text us your prayer requests, and uh, we would love to pray for you 
as a staff and elder board. Then here's a couple other things happening. We hope you'll join us for our beach baptism. It's on August 29th at Zuma Beach, and you know the location. Look for the ABF sign there uh, on the beach. Then secondly, uh, Awana registrations are now open, and kids can register, and it starts on September 14th. Um, School's already started. It's hard to believe, and we're back in session, but we need you. We need some volunteers. So sign up. You can register online. And there's a special uh, leaders training information meeting on August 31st on our campus. Then we've been waiting to tell you about this until we got all the details now down. We're going back to the Dodger game. We didn't get to do it last year. It's going to be awesome. You can see me personally or email me about getting your tickets And it'll be on Sunday, September 12th, 1 o'clock game against the San Diego Padres. It's going to be a blast. We hope you can join us. And then uh, when we are meeting uh, on this particular Sunday, even though you can't be with us, we are dedicating coaches today. And we are dedicating teachers and students. In just a moment, I'm going to be praying for all those groups as the school year has started. And so, would you join with with me as I pray for those teachers, coaches, and students, as well as for our offering. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're doing in this church. And I especially pray for teachers, whether they're homeschool teachers, private school teachers, or public teachers, that they would have a fantastic year and they'd see their teaching job as a ministry. And then secondly, we pray for the students. Lord, we pray that our students, uh, wherever they find themselves, that they would be a beacon of light to their friends on their campuses, whether it's in elementary or junior high or high school or even college. And then lastly, Lord, I pray for coaches, whether they're coaching youth teams or uh, coaches at the high school and college level. I pray that all of our coaches would see their teams as a ministry, that they would Use that time, not just on the field, but to make a difference, to be a beacon of light and hope to the, to the kids they're coaching. And so we'll pray for all these groups today as we dedicate them. And then, Lord, I pray for uh, the finances of ABF. We thank you for the faithful generosity and giving of our people, and we ask that they would continue to do that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know, you can give online. You can send a check or uh, however you want to get that to us. We're so glad you faithfully supported the church. And now, without any further ado, it is my awesome pleasure to have Josh Antioho share God's word with us. Let's hear it for him right now. A big cheer. Yes, get off your couch. You can do it. Bring it. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, thank you, Pastor John. Uh, That was a pretty stellar introduction. Hello, everybody. Great to be with you. The title of my message today is Coach Em Up. And pretty ironic considering I had no idea we were going to be praying for coaches and teachers and all that. Uh, Pretty neat. Actually, as I was just reading through our scripture today, I couldn't help but see Paul as like a coach here to the Thessalonian church. And honestly, I'm, uh, I'm kind of shocked that it's taken me so long to use a coaching theme for a message because I coached basketball for 
10 years. Uh, as you can see, I busted out one of my coaching polos for today's occasion. Uh, I kind of view the world through the lens of sport and specifically basketball. Uh, so I'm kind of shocked that it's taken so long. Uh, my coaching career, I coached for 10 years, like I said, over at Oaks Christian School. I coached boys basketball, both in the middle school and the high school, primarily with the middle school boys. Uh, I had kind of the whole gambit of coaching experience. I had some really good teams and I had some not as good teams. Uh, but one year and one game in particular stands out as I think back through my coaching career. A number do, but uh, this one in particular, I, uh, I had a, a class of eighth grade boys uh, for the basketball team, and I had a really talented class this year. I actually had two kids from that team went on to play Division I basketball. I uh, had a really talented team, and we just ran into a more talented team. Uh, honestly, they looked more like a high school varsity team or a college team. And to illustrate that, if I were, as the coach, to have suited up that game and have played, I would have been the fourth tallest person on the court that day. And I'll tell you what, none of my boys were taller than me. So that means that the other team had three guys that were bigger than me, and I'm 6'2". Uh, their starting lineup went like five foot eight or five foot ten is their shortest guy. Then they had a six footer. Then they went six three, six seven, and six eight in eighth grade. Absolutely crazy. Uh, one of those guys was a kid by the name of Cody Riley. If you're not a basketball fan, you probably don't recognize that. Uh, Cody was the starting center for UCLA last year and a big part of their final four run in the NCAA tournament. Uh, yeah, he's pretty good, and he was pretty good in eighth grade as well. I think he only dunked on us like four times, something like that. Just wild in the eighth grade game. Uh, as a coach that day, it was kind of an interesting, interesting day. I was kind of at a loss for like, what, what do I do here? Like, I don't even think if I had suited up and played, I don't think I would have helped our team all that much. Because uh, coaches, man, coaches have different roles. Uh, that particular day, my focus was not so much on the X's and O's, uh, the plays that we were going to run, but it was definitely more about managing the players, managing our boys, encouraging them, trying to inspire them, despite the fact that they were in the midst of uh, some adversity. And man, today's text, I see a similar situation playing out. The Thessalonians are experiencing some adversity, and Paul kind of puts his coach's hat on, and we're going to see that he both manages his players, manages his team, and also gives some good X's and O's. Let me pray, and then we're going to dive in and just take a look at our scripture for today. Let's pray. Dear Father, um, Lord, thank you so much for a chance to be together online. Um, thank you uh, Lord, for the amazing opportunity that it is to dive into your word and uh, to put these videos out um, without any fear of repercussion, um, that we get to do this freely is a gift. Um, Lord, I pray that you would just speak through your word. I pray that I would be small, um, that your word would be great, that we would um, even get sweet things from the example of Paul and from the scripture. And uh, yeah, Lord, we just open ourselves up to what you want to say to us today. Uh, we give this time to you now and praise the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So if you would flip with me over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're continuing in our series going through this book. As we've seen the last couple of weeks, the Thessalonians have been having some doubts. They've been second guessing some things. Uh, last week, Chris addressed 
this specific doubt, this concern that they've got about Jesus' return, and they had been convinced that they had missed Jesus' return. Chris did an amazing job kind of going through the ins and the outs of a really, really tough passage, like a super tough passage. He did amazing. And basically, Paul kind of concluded, if I could wrap it up into just one little tagline, I promise you didn't miss it, is kind of like where we, is where we uh, ended up. And so now here at the end of chapter two, in the beginning of chapter three, kind of the paragraphs that follow that section, it's kind of a little bit of a, here's how I know, and here's how you can know as well. So as I mentioned, Paul is going to start with a little bit of player management. So chapter 2, starting in verse 13, let's take a look. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So when a player is dealing with doubting their abilities, there are a handful of tactics that a coach could employ. I definitely use them in my years of coaching. I think part of it is just this, is reassurance. Part of it is, is reassurance, just like, hey, you're a good player. You've got what it takes. You can compete. Uh, reassuring the player of their abilities then another aspect is inspiration, right? How do we get them fired up? How do we motivate and get effort out of our players? Basically saying, get out there and go do it. Go out there and compete. So reassurance, inspiration, and then celebration, right? Acknowledging when a kid steps up, when he makes a good play, basically further confirming the fact that they've got what it takes. So Paul to be honest, uses a similar, similar formula here. In verses 13 and 14, he starts with some reassurance. He's saying your salvation is secure. Look there at verse 13. He says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Then in verse 14, he called you through our gospel. They're referring to the good news of Jesus that Paul had proclaimed to them. So before diving into this reassurance even a little bit more, I do want to draw your attention to the word first fruits there in verse 13. So this doesn't come up too often as we're navigating our way through scripture. So I thought it would just be an important uh, brief conversation to have. First fruits is a textual variant. It's a textual variant. What a textual variant uh, is, is it simply means that there's a difference from a standard text. Now, this could mean that there's a spelling error, something to do with word order, omission, addition, substitution, or a total rewrite. In this instance, here in verse 13, this word first fruits, we're dealing with a substitution. So some early manuscripts use this Greek word that we're seeing translated as first fruits, and other manuscripts have a different word. 
So as I said, here we're seeing the word that's translated first fruits. In other manuscripts, there's another Greek word that's actually just one slight little Greek character off. And it's translated from the beginning, from the beginning. So we've got first fruits and we've got from the beginning. If first fruits was the original writing, what Paul had originally intended, basically what Paul is saying is that the Thessalonians were some of the first converts in the entire region. Make sense? If from the beginning was original, Paul is paralleling this to what he said in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, saying that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Make sense? So either they're the first converts in the region or it's talking about from the very beginning, God chose the Thessalonians. Either way, Paul's main point remains the same, that God chose the Thessalonians for salvation. God chose them. So not to spend too much time on the topic, but I really do think it's worth a short conversation. There are thousands of textual variants in the biblical writings. There are thousands of them due to the fact that we just have so many manuscripts. We have so many manuscripts. In the New Testament alone, we have around 25,000 manuscripts. There are bound to be variants. There's bound to be variants. The real question is, and I think all of us need to ask this question as we just like open ourselves up and want truth, is do any of these variants impede our ability to know the original content? Do any of these changes from manuscript to manuscript, any of these variations, any of these variants, do they impede our ability to know the original content? Because that's what we want to know. Emphatically, the answer is no. And this is why. Over 99% of the textual variants that we see in scripture can be very easily reconciled, very easily reconciled. We have no problem whatsoever discerning the original message. In these cases, right, this 99 plus percent, there are variants between manuscripts and they look like a spelling error or they look like the switching of a word order. So like Jesus Christ versus in another manuscript, Christ Jesus. Or there's a divergent message that comes across in some of the later manuscripts, but it's kind of a standalone thing. And as we look at the rest of scripture, we see, well, that doesn't belong there. As we look at the earlier manuscripts, that doesn't fit. Again, these account for, all these things that I'm describing, they account for not more than 99% of the variants that we see in all of scripture. So that's why I can say, like I did before, that this doesn't come up that often in scripture. So then, addressing the 1%, right? Addressing the 1%, uh, which ours here, first fruits, fits into that 1%, where either option is viable, Right? So either first fruits or from the beginning, they're both viable. They both have manuscript attestation. Um, and it actually does change the message of what's being said. Out of the 1%, none of them have a significant impact or have any, um, yeah, have a significant impact on doctrine or the core beliefs of Christianity. Um, and we see that here with first fruits in our situation today, right? Regardless of which word was original, Paul's message of reassurance to the Thessalonian church is that they're chosen by God. Those who've received the good news of Jesus, who have put their faith in him, that are trusting Jesus' death as payment for their sin, that have made them, him the Lord and King of their life, 
They are chosen by God. So whether he meant to say that they were chosen at the very beginning, or if he's just trying to say that they were chosen first in the region, to be honest, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. The point is that they were chosen. And the same is true for you today. If you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've made him the king and Lord of your life, you're chosen. You're chosen. And I think that this sparks another interesting debate. So how does that work, right? If those that love and follow Jesus are chosen by God, how does that work? Is predestination true? Is like, do we have a say at all in it? Does he just decide who he calls and saves and it's just on his side of the equation? Or do we have free will? Do we play into the equation at all whatsoever? Um, we're just gonna spend the next five, 10, maybe 15 minutes just kind of diving into this conversation. It's a great conversation to have. Um, I'm just kidding. We are not gonna spend five, 10, 15 minutes diving into that conversation. There's probably some of you that would enjoy it, but so many others of you would just be like scratching at your eyeballs if, uh, if, if we were to do that. So we're not gonna spend time. If you wanna have the conversation, I actually enjoy the conversation. Um, I actually think it's pretty simple. Both are, both are clearly true. Absolutely, the Lord has chosen us and chooses, but at the same time, he's absolutely given us free will and we have the opportunity to choose him or to reject him. So how do both of those things being true at the same time work together? That I don't really know. That's a question that I'm gonna ask him someday when I get up there. Uh, but again, I, I don't know how it works together, but clearly, uh, in my humble opinion, both of those things are true and working together in some sort of amazing harmony. So all that being said, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are chosen by God. If you're chosen by God, that should be incredibly reassuring for our future, both in the short term here on this earth and in the long term in eternity to come. So after reassuring the church of their salvation, Paul moves on to a little inspiration. Look at verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. He says, so then, stand firm, the title of our series, and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. So I don't know what your reaction is uh, to the word traditions when you hear it in this context. If I'm being honest, when I hear traditions kind of referring to like church stuff, I push back a little bit. I'm a little weary of it. I, I think it's easy to go to kind of the negative side of church tradition and think about how over time, how when human tradition and human rules are elevated to a place that they shouldn't be, uh, that that's just not a good thing. However, that's not what Paul is talking about here. So the Greek word here for traditions literally means things handed down. This word means things handed down. And what Paul's referring to is divine revelation. He's referring to divine revelation that's been handed down from God to Paul and the other apostles that they then have communicated both by word of mouth and by letter. 
So for us today, this is referring strictly to letters and writings contained in Scripture, in the Bible. This verse, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, is not a verse contending that church tradition is at equal level with Scripture. Not trying to say that at all. Uh, That would belong in our last series that we just did on misquoted and misunderstood. Uh, Anyways, the most important piece of this verse is not that word traditions. It is stand firm. Stand firm. Paul is inspiring them, saying, believer, you have been chosen by the God of the universe. Stand firm and follow him unwaveringly. Sweet little Holly is coming up on five months old. It's crazy how fast it comes. I know she's gaining strength in her neck, in her core, in her legs. She's growing, it seems like, every hour. It's pretty wild. Uh, whenever she's with me, whenever she's with daddy, uh, I am pretty much just consistently putting her through little workouts. She doesn't know it, like she's too young, but basically whenever she's with me, she's like doing a workout of some sort. So I've either got her on her tummy, doing tummy time, strengthening her neck and her back, or I've got her like kind of in like squat position, just like uh, supporting her so that she can like work on her legs. Or I've got her like in a seated position, so she's working her core and stability. But pretty much like whenever she's with me, Lindsay makes fun of me. She's like, oh, you're with daddy, you're working out again. Uh, But I pretty much always have her in some sort of thing where she's strengthening. Uh, Needless to say, as an infant, she's not that great at standing and uh, doesn't really take much at all for her to then be knocked off. She doesn't stand very firmly. Then I have some nieces and nephews. I've got a bunch of them ranging in ages from age one to age 10. One of my favorite times of the week is Sunday night fight night over at my in-laws, grandma, grandpa's house. Basically what it turns into is battle royale and not in the sense that everybody's fighting everybody. It's all of the nephews and nieces are just fighting Uncle Josh. So it's a great time. We have a really good time. But as they're getting older, they get harder to knock down. Uh, It's it's an absolute blast, but they do. They get stronger and and harder to knock down. Uh, I also have worked in high school ministry for over eight years, and there have been some wrestling matches. High schoolers are even more difficult to knock down than 10-year-olds. And then this past weekend, I was hanging out with my buddies that I went to college with, Uh, got a chance to meet up with them in the Midwest for a a quick weekend getaway. And let's just say that one of the guys cracked a rib (laughs) from getting tackled. Um, So I was neither like on the receiving end or the giving end. So just so you know, not that that's like under beneath me, I I like to mix it up. Anyways, um, they're full grown men. And uh, certainly more difficult to knock down than even high schoolers. Okay, all this to say, I, I digress a little bit, but all that to say is that generally speaking, with maturity comes strength and stability. With maturity comes strength and stability. The Thessalonians had uh, two really types of issues that they were dealing with. They were dealing with situational and philosophical issues right? They were dealing with different, difficult life situations. And then they were also being swayed by incorrect teaching and worldviews. And man, I just think the same is true for us today. Like the issues that we're dealing with are both situational and philosophical, right? We're, we're experiencing tough times. Uh, people run into tough times financially, relationally, 
health-wise. And then on the philosophical end, we absolutely come across teaching and viewpoint uh, that can lead to questions. And maybe it doesn't seem like on the surface, it falls in line with our Christian worldview. So what do we do with that? My question is pretty simple for you today. My question is, well, how firmly do you stand in your relationship with the Lord? Like if you think about it, as you've come across situations or philosophies over, over time, like how firmly do you stand? If you had to give yourself an age, like a spiritual age, what age would you fit in? Like which bracket or category out of the ones that I just described would you fall in? How firmly do you stand in your relationship with the Lord? How much does it take for you to shake, for you to fall, for you to question, for you to doubt? Is your world rocked when you hear about thousands of textual variants? Do you have to rethink your entire worldview because of the fact that there are thousands of textual variants? And if so, what does that actually say about your spiritual maturity? I, uh, Lindsay and I spent a good amount of time at the Kaiser in LA on sunset. Uh, we were there a year and a half uh, with stuff going on with JJ. We were there for a few weeks. And if you're unfamiliar with the area, it is right across the street from the giant Scientology church, I think it's called. And we were there, like I said, for a few weeks. And towards the end of our stay there, I was going for some runs and just getting out of the building and just running around. And on one of my runs, I got down to one of the corners and there were some people from the Church of Scientology over there and they were engaging in conversation, handing out stuff. And I was just kind of in the mood for a fun conversation. And so I started chatting them up and we talked about this, that, the other thing. They invited me back into their church. And uh, so I was like, let's do it. Let's go. I'm all, I'm all about this. I want to I wanna find out some stuff and learn some things and have some conversations. And uh, don't worry, I called my wife on my way in there. <laughs> I was just like, if I'm not back in an hour, like <laughs> send the rescue team. Um, I, I joke. Um, but I legitimately did tell Lindsay. And so I go in and they kind of pass me along to some different people. I'm talking to people. They sit me down in front of a TV and kind of give me their spiel about uh, what Scientology is all about. And then they kind of bring in the closer to have a conversation with me. And so we're chatting it up and he informs me. Um, so back up a little bit. Reincarnation is kind of a, a big part of uh, Scientology, which I didn't know at the time as I was going in, but reincarnation is, is, is a big kind of part of their deal. And uh, then I'm talking with the closer and he informs me that reincarnation actually used to be in the Bible. And then they ended up taking out the doctrine of reincarnation in the 1600s. Um, I, he didn't say the reason why, or I don't remember the reason why, but he informed me. And he was shocked to find out that I told him that the, the canon of scripture has been set since the fourth century, right? Since the 300s, we've had the exact same Bible, like the exact same like we, can, we have manuscripts that go from before that all the way up to present day. And the Bible is the exact same. Like we are very, very certain of the original message back then. Nothing has come in. Nothing has gone out. Like we have, we have scripture, um, like original scripture. Um, he was shocked. He didn't, really have, he didn't really have an answer to say that. They didn't, I don't think they had anything in the script. And uh, I... I bring that up because I remember walking away thinking, man, I wonder how many Christians 
have heard that line before and have just been absolutely floored, had their like whole worldview, their whole view of scripture, their whole view of Christianity just completely like shipwrecked uh, because of this lie that a Scientologist or whoever feeds them about reincarnation being in scripture. And I, just, I couldn't help but think, man, I just wonder how many people have just like taken that and it's just rocked their world. Uh, I don't bring this up as like a, hey, you need to have all the answers. You need to know all the things. You should all have a master's in theology or whatever. That, that's not my intention whatsoever. Really, just asking the question, just wondering when you hear stuff like that, because I, I feel like statements like that or questions or thoughts like that get thrown out all the time. My question is when stuff like that comes up, what does that do to your faith? Do you stand firm or does that like make you shake like a leaf? Do you stand firm trusting in the God who chose you, the God who chose you, and then go and seek out the answers knowing that God can handle it all? Because I'll tell you what, our God can defend himself. He can absolutely defend himself. And it is really, really sweet to stand firm in moments like that, whether it's a philosophical moment, like those situations that I'm talking about, or if it's a situational thing, just a difficult life situation that comes up. It's so sweet to stand firm and then to see how God comes through and what God brings out of it. And that's the next thing. That's the exact last piece that Paul's talking about here, the celebration piece. Because Paul assures them that celebration, that comfort will come with every good work and every good word there in verses 16 and 17. So Paul kind of has some player management, right? He's dealing with the mentality of the church, of his team, and now he's moving to some X's and O's. Flip over to chapter three, starting in verse one. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So another massive part of coaching as I have mentioned, is not just managing your players, but also the X's and the O's, the actual plays that the team is going to run. Uh, a good coach that calls or draws up that right play at the right time can absolutely help the team succeed out on the court. Uh, I know I, I, I immediately go to basketball. So on the court, on the field, whatever. On the court. So here, Paul is drawing up this killer play, just knowing that it's gonna lead to the success for the church. And shockingly, it is still applicable for us today. What is the play? What's the play? Prayer. Well, Josh, that's a really simple play. True, but it's incredibly effective. Um, one of my favorite inbounds plays of all time, I ran it with every single one of my teams, is very, very simple. It's a stack play. You have one man inbounding the ball underneath the basket. You line the other four up in a row. The first two just split. The third man puts his hands up in the air, starts yelling ball and backs up into the defender of the fourth guy. The fourth guy just runs down the lane, gets a pass and gets a layup. It's so easy. It's crazy how often it works. Incredibly simple, incredibly effective. 
It is just like that. Prayer is not a complex spiritual play, but is absolutely effective, and it will set up the church and believers for success. So here in this section, Paul does two things. He both asks the church, uh, asks for prayer from the church, and then he offers a prayer for the church. So he asks for prayer that the gospel would spread unhindered, even into the darkest of places. And then he prays for the church that they both individually and collectively would be able to stand firm. Look there in verses one and two, he asks for prayer. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and beyond it as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Paul asked them to pray that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored. Speed ahead and be honored. Any Olympics fans out there? As I was reading through this and just thinking through like the illustration, what Paul's actually saying here, like the verbiage that he's using, I couldn't help but think about the races from the 400 meter hurdles, both the men's and the women's. If you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. They were incredible. Not only did the winner set a world record for both the men and the women, but also the second place finisher in both races also beat the previous world record. It was insane. It was so good. So, and that's the illustration here. Paul is asking them to pray for the good news of Jesus to sprint out, to be like a runner and sprint out at world record pace. That is just a cool thought and a cool prayer. Uh, pretty amazing. So the big picture here of what Paul is asking them to pray for is Paul is asking for prayer from new believers for effectiveness in evangelism. I'm gonna break that down because I think there's some really good stuff in there um, that's noteworthy and definitely feel free to answer along. So the first thing that I think comes up is who? Who is the one that's asking for prayer? Well, it's a pretty simple answer. It's Paul. Paul is asking for prayer. One of the greatest Christians, one of the most successful evangelists of all time knows that he is desperate for prayer, knowing that he is desperate for the Lord to show up. If Paul needs prayer, so do we. The second part, who is Paul asking for prayer from? So here in this instance, he's asking for prayer from new believers, from new believers, from the Thessalonian church. They are new believers. He didn't reserve his prayer requests for the staff, for the elder board, even from his life group. Any believer would do. He is open for prayer from anyone. Here, this group of new believers that has been convinced that Jesus has already returned uh, I wouldn't argue that they are the most mature spiritually, but Paul's asking for prayer for them. And man, I just think that that is cool news. Man, if you are newer to following Jesus, this is amazing, amazing news. Your prayer, your intercession is so, so valuable. Know that you are not useless in this area until you've like reached a certain level. Not the case whatsoever. So here the third element, and I think, man, just so good, so convicting, is what did Paul ask for prayer about? What did Paul ask for prayer about? He asked for prayer that he would be effective in evangelism, that he would be effective in evangelism. Now, sure, if you look there at verse two, um, he does ask for physical protection as well. However, the reason why he's asking for that protection is because it is directly related to the mission. 
right? He asks for prayer for safety and for protection so that he can reach others with the gospel. So that he can reach others with the gospel. Now, I know that this is going to be a touchy subject, especially now, especially dealing with COVID over the last year and a half and all the health-related things going on. Um, but because of that, maybe this is the best time to ask the question. My question is this, over the last two years, over the last two years, have you prayed more for people's physical health or for their spiritual health? Have you spent more time praying for physical health or for spiritual health? And may I just offer that if you really think about it, uh, does it make sense to spend so much time and energy in prayer praying to keep people on this broken, temporary, fading planet, right? Praying for, praying for their help, praying to keep them here as long as possible. Does it make sense to spend our prayer energy praying for that? Or does it make more sense to be banging on the gates of heaven, pleading with the Lord, spending our time praying for things of spiritual and eternal significance? praying that more people would come to know the Lord and have eternity with him. Man, I just think it is a good question, a great self-evaluation, just like thinking through our own prayer lives, right? If you were to put percentages on like the different requests that you ask of the Lord, what percentage of your prayer requests are related to physical well-being here on earth? Related to health, safety, finances, relationships, etc.? And what percentage of your prayer requests are related to spiritual well-being, to, to evangelism, to your friends coming to know the Lord, to things, uh, to growing in your relationship with Jesus? Now, uh, just a few clarifications. I'm definitely not opposed to sharing prayer requests with uh, your life group. Uh, actually, on the contrary, I highly, highly recommend sharing prayer requests with a life group and core group of people that can be praying for each other uh, consistently. Man, uh, the group of guys in our life group, I'm so blessed to like be genuinely known by guys and prayed for by guys regularly. And I was thinking about this even just with the illustration of the runners in the 400 meters. I think there's a reason why the winner of the race set a world record is because they had somebody pushing them. And just think, man, that is so true of our life groups. Um, or small groups, or men's groups, or women's groups, or whatever it may be. Uh, I'm also not saying that we should never uh, ask the Lord about things concerning physical well-being. I absolutely know that the Lord cares about all the little things. He wants us to bring our request to him. It's sweet for us to acknowledge him as the source of the giver of all good things. So I'm not saying that. I just think that it's wise to do a little self-evaluation because I know that, these pr that prayer requests about physical things, somehow they sneak into being our primary prayer requests or maybe even our only prayer requests when that's not the place that they should take. They should be secondary, even complementary to prayer requests uh, related to spiritual things. Um, like for Paul is asking for prayer for physical protection so that he can go and share the gospel. I just think that is just a beautiful, beautiful picture and exactly what it should look like. Um, I was conv uh, convicted about this a couple of years ago. Um, 
I, yeah, I heard a quote, um, and it was kind of along these lines of just like, man, why do we spend so much time praying for people to stay alive instead of praying for people to come alive? I don't know if that's the quote, um, but it's something like that. And it really just struck with me. And I remember being convicted um, for a while. I, uh, man, I was spending a considerable amount of my prayer time just praying for, by name, for friends that didn't know Jesus. And man, as I look back, it's crazy to see how many sweet, like Jesus conversations came out of that. Um, pretty amazing. And I don't know how much of that is just because it was on my mind because I was mindful of praying for them. And I don't know how much of that is because the Lord like was listening and coming alongside. And as I'm praying, just like making stuff happen. I don't know what the balance of that was. Um, but I know as I look back, there's just like a sweet season of that. And to be honest with you, over the last year and a half since JJ stuff and a bigger conversation there, I, I really have fallen out of the habit uh, of that. And I've been convicted anew um, here this last week as I've even been studying in God's uh, word this week. And I could not help but think, man, that maybe there are just a few others uh, out there where the entirety of their prayer life, or at least a vast majority of the prayer life, is prayer requests concerning just the physical, temporary things here of this earth. And just maybe somebody out there needs a nudge of, man, what am I actually spending my time praying for? What requests am I bringing before the Lord? Are my requests those that have eternal spiritual significance? Finally, here in the last three verses of the section, uh, verses three through five, Paul prays for the Thessalonian church for a few things. He prays that they would rely on the Lord's faithfulness, that they would be able to stand firm looking to the steadfastness that Jesus displayed on the cross. Man, I just think that is an amazing prayer um, for us and for others as people are experiencing doubt, confusion, tough times. And I could not help but think uh, just how applicable and how necessary and how perfect this is given our current situation in our world, thinking about things that are going on in Afghanistan, I'm sure you've probably heard stories, I've heard plenty of them, of just how believers and missionaries, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, are literally facing execution because of following Jesus. And uh, man, just the prayer that they would rely on the Lord's faithfulness, that they'd be able to stand firm, that they'd be able to look and see the steadfastness that Jesus displayed on the cross, and that that would influence their lives. Um, man, as we close up, I would just like to pray for them and I'd like to pray for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, Father, um, Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. Um, we thank you that our fellow believers and missionaries in Afghanistan are just chosen by you. Um, Lord, we pray that that truth, the truth that they've been chosen by you would just invade their hearts and their minds even now and that would give them reassurance knowing that they belong to you, the one true God. Um, Father, we ask that you would intervene just supernaturally, um, that you would give them physical protection so that they continue, uh, can continue to spread your word uh, and share the gospel where they're at. Um, Lord, regardless of who's physically present in Afghanistan, uh, Lord, we just ask that the gospel would just run forward. Would it just sprint on ahead despite the situation going on there today? Um, Lord, again, we just ask in Jesus' name um, that you would just save the lives supernaturally of our brothers and sisters in Christ over there. 
Um, but even more importantly, Lord, we ask that you would just give them the strength to stand firm. Would they so tangibly and easily see um, your faithfulness? Would they so tangibly and easily see the steadfastness that Jesus had for them while he was on the cross? I pray that those realities would just be so real, so vivid um, in their hearts and in their lives. Um, Father, I pray that you would just use them in their, li in their life or in their death to accomplish your purposes here on this planet. Um, and we just trust that you will, Lord. Um, Father, I pray a lot of just the same things for us, Lord. I'm just so thankful um, that we are chosen. Um, those of us that uh, love and serve and follow you, Lord, that we're chosen by you. What an amazing uh, reality. I pray that that would just give us sweet reassurance as we follow you um, going through um, this life. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd give us the ability to stand firm despite what situations, what philosophy comes our way. Um, Lord, would we stand firm? Um, and Lord, I pray that we would too, in our life or our death, that we would be used for your purposes um, here on this planet. Um, Lord, we love you so much. We're so thankful again for this chance to be in your word. Um, we pray that you'd use it now. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. worship today, we worship today, came to us with grace and in truth still with us, but still on the move, the same Jesus, he is making us new, he is making us new. Redeemer.
Well, thank you, team. I brought a little guest up here for our outro. Sweet little Holly hanging out with us today. Hey, just wanted to remind you, the play is to pray. The play is to pray. Also, man, stand firm. Maybe not like this little one. She's working on it. I know. Uh, she's working, but check it out. Amazing. Amazing. Hey, we love you so, so much. I know. I'm sorry. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. We love you. We'll see you soon. Say bye. <laughs>